And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live at Joy 620 here in Knoxville, Tennessee, or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. We're grateful that you're here. We have a lot to talk about today. As always, somebody asked me earlier, hey, what are you going to be talking about? And I said, here's what I can guarantee you. With 100% certainty, I'm going to talk about the issue of abortion. Because that's what we do. That's what I've been doing on this show for eight years now. Isn't that crazy? Eight years I've been doing this every single week, uh, for the most part, every single week for eight years, uh, which is just crazy to think about. So uh, we're going to look at what's happening around the country. Uh, This past week, I had an opportunity to travel to uh, parts of our state here in Tennessee. I spoke at an event in uh, Dunlap, Tennessee, uh, last week. uh, And man, that was great. Great crowd. We raised a lot of money for the Pregnancy Center uh, there. And, uh, and then this past Friday, uh, I was blessed to be in Jacksonville, Florida, right outside of Jacksonville in Clay County. Uh, and I spoke at an event there and another great event as we celebrated the work of Pregnancy Centers uh, that, that's happening there uh, in, in Clay County. And, and it's just amazing to watch people come and, and, and get a chance to hear the stories of the Pregnancy Center. Uh, but also to hear uh, the heart of the ministry and why they do the work that they do. And so my, my goal in those moments when I'm speaking at those uh, events is simply to shine a light on the great work of the Pregnancy Center. Uh, my goal is also to reignite some fire in partners and supporters because what, what I've found in conversations is since the overturning of Roe, since the Dobbs decision on June 24th, 2022, there have been some folks that have been like, look, we're, we're good. We're done. The fight's over. Uh, Roe is overturned. That was the ultimate goal, and we got that out of here. But, but what I'm trying to remind folks of is the fight isn't over. Overturning Roe was a big, big goal. It was a giant goal. It was a giant uh, step in the right direction, and, and we wanted that to happen. But it wasn't the ultimate goal. It's part of the process. We need to get Roe overturned, and we did that, and we should celebrate, and we should high-five, and we should uh, do all of those things. But, but the reality is there's a lot of work to be done because now it goes from a kind of a one-place one issue, a federal issue, to a 50-state offensive. And so now we're in, we're in 50 states, and we're working to see life protected. We're working to see legislation change. We're working to see revival and heart change in the church. And so the fight is not over, and I need partners and supporters and people that will stand for life to understand that we still have much work, much work to do. Uh, So as we look at that, what's the process of how we look at the pregnancy center and and how we operate as a pregnancy center and how we're serving patients? And and the reality is there's still abortion-vulnerable, abortion-minded women in our state here in Tennessee, or as I told them in Florida just this past week, the reality is, even though Florida has a 15-week ban in place, which we celebrate, 97% of all abortions in the state of Florida happen prior to 15 weeks. So there's still a lot of abortions happening in the state of Florida. Now they are looking at, and there's been legislation drafted and going through the process that, that would uh, put in a heartbeat bill, so put a six-week ban in place. But but right now, it's a 15-week ban. 
The six-week ban will be great, and Governor DeSantis has already said that he's going to sign that if it does make it to his desk, and we pray that it does. But there's still a lot of work to be done, regardless of what state you're in. Maybe, maybe you're listening to this and you're like, my state's bluer than blue, and we allow for abortion all the way up to nine months. There's work to be done there. In states like Tennessee, where we have, uh, for the most part, outlawed abortion across the board, we know for a fact, I just got somebody that reached out to me from Asheville, North Carolina, saying, look, your folks are coming to our state. So people are leaving Tennessee, and they're going to places like North Carolina, to Georgia, to Florida, to Illinois. So the fight's not over. They're also getting abortion pills online. Very easy to get abortion pills. They're stocking up on them. They're putting them in their medicine cabinet. You, you have pimps and traffickers that are stocking up on these pills as well. So, so it doesn't mean that the fight's over. Roe being overturned, huge. We need to celebrate that. Big deal. Giant step in the right direction. Righting a lot of wrongs. But still a lot of work to be done. And one of the things that, that's being done, and, and one of the things that's been introduced in Washington, is uh, a bill seeking higher penalties for those that would attack pregnancy centers. So listen to this from Life News. Republican New York Representative Claudia Tenney reintroduced legislation this past Thursday that would make sure pro-life pregnancy centers and places of worship are protected from activists and would increase the penalties for attackers. The legislation, titled the Pregnancy Resource Center Defense Act, and first obtained by the Daily Caller, is the companion legislation to the same bill introduced by Republican Missouri Senator Josh Hawley. The bill would increase criminal penalties from a misdemeanor to a felony for first-time offenses. The bill would also increase the criminal fine from $10,000 to $25,000. In Washington, D.C., the Capitol Hill Crisis Pregnancy Center was vandalized in June of 2022. In Amherst, New York, a Compass Care Pregnancy Services location was set on fire, and more pro-life pregnancy centers and Christian churches have been vandalized. Pregnancy resource centers across the country are continuing to be attacked and vandalized by radical pro-abortion extremist groups, Tenney told the caller before reintroducing the bill. The recent vandalization of Compass Care and increased attacks on pro-life facilities are simply reprehensible. The perpetrators of these attacks must be found and prosecuted. It is my honor to reintroduce the Pregnancy Resource Center Defense Act on behalf of women and families everywhere who visit centers like Compass Care to receive compassionate and professional care and support. Yeah, look, it, this should be a no-brainer. It should be a no-brainer. But I guarantee you there's going to be folks that do not support this legislation. They go further. This bill works to hold these criminals responsible for their acts of violence. House Republicans remain committed to protecting all those who stand up for life in this country, as well as to promoting and preserving the right to life for all, Tenney added. The Pregnancy Resource Center Defense Act would also guarantee pregnancy resource centers and religious facilities that successfully sue will receive no less than $20,000, which is $10,000 more than the current levels. It would also impose a seven-year mandatory minimum when attacks involve arson, which is an increase from the current five-year mandatory minimum. Look, again, this, this should be a no-brainer. It's interesting. We, we live in a culture and society that, that claim we're pro-abortion, therefore we're pro-woman. Or we're pro-woman, therefore we must be pro-abortion. That same culture and society would say, we are pro-woman and you should be too. And then when asked, please define what a woman is, their answer is, well, 
it's fluid and we can't define what a woman is. So what is being pro-woman then exactly? How can I be pro-woman if I cannot define what a woman is? These same folks would say, I am pro-woman, therefore I am for Planned Parenthood and abortion clinics. But they wouldn't say, I am pro-woman, therefore I am in favor of pregnancy centers and the work that they are doing. No, they wouldn't say that. Because if they admit that the work being done in a pregnancy center is, is good and helpful, then their argument falls flat. You see, we define being pro-woman as understanding that they truly can do anything. We believe being pro-woman is saying you can have your baby and your dreams. You don't have to pick one or the other. We believe that being pro-woman is celebrating motherhood. We believe that being pro-woman is protecting women, not just walking around, but women in the womb. We believe that being pro-woman is an opportunity to provide the care and service and material assistance that is needed in their time of need, in a time of crisis. You don't have a car seat, we got you. You don't have a pack and play, we got you. You don't have a diaper bag, we got you. You don't have diapers and wipes, we got you. You need formula, we got you. You see, that's what being pro-woman is about. Being pro-woman is not telling all females, you don't need that baby. That's not being pro-woman. Being pro-woman is not telling pregnant women, you can't possibly do this. That's not being pro-woman. Being pro-woman is not saying, I am pro-birthing person. That's not pro-woman because now you're eliminating women. You see, but the work that's being done inside the pregnancy center, which is why we want to protect pregnancy centers, is truly pro-woman. You know, when, when, when folks say, I am woman, hear me roar. And anything you can do, I can do better. And then, and then they would eliminate pregnancy. They would eliminate the baby. That's not pro-woman. And so as we think through these issues and as we think through what's happening around our society and culture, that's why I'm so uh, encouraged when I visit pregnancy centers across the country because I get to see that this is happening all over the place. Women being loved well, women being prayed with. This, this past weekend, I heard from a man and a woman. And the man saying, you know, I'm so thankful for what this pregnancy center did for us. And the, the young lady saying, I made some bad choices in my life and, and this particular place stood up for me. And they stood with me and they showed me that I could do it. And they're still walking with me in this process. And although I don't have all things figured out just yet, I know they are there for me. That's being pro-woman. Being pro-woman is not as a CEO telling your female employees, we'll pay for your abortion. We'll pay for your travel because, you know what, we need you back in that cubicle next week. That's not pro-woman. 
Being pro-woman is not your governor and your legislature saying, we're going to pay for abortions with our tax dollars. That's not pro-woman. Certainly not pro-baby. And so we could go on and on and on and on about what we see in our society, but, but what I want you to understand is life is a gift. Life is precious. It deserves to be protected in the womb and out of the womb. But if we don't get it right in the beginning, in the womb, we're going to get it wrong everywhere else. Do you understand that? Look across the landscape. We have gotten the abortion issue wrong for decades. We have told generations that you don't need your baby, that you matter more than your baby. We've told generations that. China has put in one-child policy, then moved to two-child policy. Then Now they're saying our population is declining. We need more births. And they've told generations that if you have big families, multiple children, you are a bad mom and a bad dad. And now they wonder why these folks are not having babies. It's because they've been told their entire lives having more than one child makes you a bad parent. That's not pro-woman. That's not pro-family. But when we get it wrong in the womb, we get it wrong everywhere else. We saw this even three years ago with the way we handled the pandemic in nursing homes. You see, we have, we have gotten it wrong for so long with the value of human life in the womb that we thought it okay to put sick folks in the nursing home that ultimately did more damage than anything else. Why? Because we don't understand the value of life. We've told generations that some lives have more value, that abortion is the answer. And then some folks picks, pick up weapons and they go in and they have mass shootings or mass stabbings. Why? Because they've been told that some lives have more value than others. So when we get it wrong in the womb, we get it wrong everywhere after that. And that's where we step in and go, life has value. From womb to tomb. We'll be back. As we continue the conversation, look, I wanted to point out what's happening with the legislation in D.C. Because I do think it's important that oftentimes pregnancy centers are maligned and, and, and attacked. And very few times do uh, congressional leaders, national leaders, from a political standpoint, uh, kind of step up and, and seek to protect. And so it is, it is nice to know that, that folks are, are seeking to protect pregnancy centers, the folks that work there, the folks that volunteer there. Uh, it makes a difference. And, and so we're grateful, uh, we're grateful for that. And, and I think it's important as we, as we continue the conversation and look at what's happening uh, everywhere that we understand this from a biblical worldview. This isn't just, hey, I have an opinion when it comes to the politics of it all. I certainly have an opinion. If you listen to this show long enough, you know why I have an, uh, I, that I do, in fact, have opinions on, on all of this from a political standpoint. But, but that's, not the, uh, that's not the ultimate answer. 
Because if our ultimate answer is there, then, then I think we're missing the point. It, our hope is not placed in politicians, and, and I say this like a broken record on here, but our hope is not placed in the Oval Office. I mean, we have, uh, we have our hope in, in Jesus. We have our hope in uh, what God has for us, and, and we move in that. And that's why I talked about that last week, of you don't leave God back at the camp. Like, it's important that we, that we are stand, stand bold and firm in our belief system uh, as Christians. And so as we look at this, you know, listening to this show, we, we talk about a number of things when it comes to um, being, being for life. So certainly that includes the abortion debate. Certainly that includes the, issue, uh, the issues facing uh, our states and our, our country when it comes to abortion. But, but it also looks at different things that are happening around our society and culture that are uh, dehumanizing folks. That are that are making folks uh, and creating atmospheres that would that would make folks struggle. Uh, so we've talked on here about adolescent depression. We talked on here about the gender issues that are um, running rampant across our country. And and oftentimes I'll say that a lot of that comes and is stemmed from and and finds its genesis in the social media culture that we find ourselves in. And, and so when I talk about that, I'm also talking to myself because at times when I get my update on Sundays of how much I was on my phone, there's a lot of conviction there. And, and let's be honest, there's times where it says you spent X amount of time a day on your phone. And then we try to justify it. Uh, well, I flew a lot this week or this month and I traveled a lot. And so I was on a plane. And so that, that meant I was on my phone a little bit more. Or, well, I had downtime and I was on my phone or I was doing stuff for work. So it's not like I was just scrolling Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or fill in the blank. But we try to justify it away just like our kids try to justify it away. Well, I was bored and I had time in my room and I was doing research and, and, and whatever. But the reality is we all... Many of us, I won't say all of us, many of us do have some issues with social media and with time on our phone. And I wish, I mean, if, if it convicts me when it says you've spent, you know, three hours a day, four hours a day on your phone, when my iPhone tells me that on Sunday, I wish there was a way for it to say, or for some app to say, you've spent X amount of time with your children this week. You spent X amount of time with your spouse this week. You spent X amount of time having conversations with people that mean something to you this week. You spent X amount of time in prayer this week, X amount of time reading the scriptures. You see, but, but we don't track that. But, but I'm a little concerned that if we track that, our time on our phone would prove to be taking up more of the time in our life. If we track that, I'm afraid that the time on things that mean nothing would outweigh the time on things that mean something. And so what do we do about it? Do we wrestle with this? Are we wrestling with this in our homes? Are we wrestling this with this in our own lives? Are we wrestling with this with our children and so some folks think, well, I mean, we can, we can make a difference if, with legislation. And so what does that look like? Well, Utah becomes the first to limit teens' social media use with new law. Now listen to this. 
Utah passed legislation last Thursday to require parental consent for children to use certain social media apps, becoming the first state in the country to limit teenagers' social media usage. Republican Governor Spencer Cox signed two bills into law that limits minors from using social media apps like TikTok, requiring parental consent for those under 18. Minors are prohibited from using these platforms between 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. and are subjected to age verification prior to social media use. As leaders and as parents, we have a responsibility to protect our young people, Cox said in a video announcing legislation's passage. We put social media companies on notice, letting them know we will be fighting them in court, and we're empowering parents with education and tools. The legislation which goes into effect March 2024 welcomes lawsuits relating to the harmful side effects of social media has had on children. SB 152 and HB 311 provide rules detailing how to sue the social media companies, requiring the platforms to prove that their apps are not harmful. So the question is, how does that make some of us feel? Now, let's be honest. Some of us are waiting for the government to do something because we don't have the guts to do it in our own homes. Ooh, and I know that might make you uncomfortable. But I'm not just stepping on your toes. I'm stepping on my toes. So some of us are waiting for the government to step in because we refuse to step in. Some of us are waiting for other folks to make disciples of our children because we refuse to make disciples of our children. Like, I I know this is difficult to talk about. But when we see the numbers, and you can go back a few weeks ago where I talked about the numbers that are coming out when it comes to depression in teens, when it comes to anxiety in teens. For a long time, we didn't know if social media was playing a role in that. But now, and a few weeks ago I talked about this, there's studies out there showing that they go hand in hand. And, and I know this because it works the same way with adults. So if it's going hand in hand with adults, that we, we have this sense of anxiety or, or this sense of depression because we're looking on social media and we feel like our body doesn't match what we think it should or our home doesn't match what we think it should or our relationships don't match what it think we should or, or the, the bank account doesn't match and, and go where we think it should. And our brains are fully developed. How much greater an impact is it making on our young people where their brains are not fully developed? And so I don't know if the answer is legislation. I, I would say the answer is never just in legislation. But we have to be talking about these things. When we hand that phone to a young person, to our kids, we are handing them a portal to literally everything. all the information in the world. And then we're surprised when they have anxiety. We're surprised when they worry. We're surprised when they find themselves depressed. Having a portal to all the information in the world is a heavy, heavy thing. But here's the thing. We also know, we also know that, that the CEOs of most of these social media companies do not let their children own social media. 
The TikTok CEO was just in front of Congress the other day when asked about his kids being on TikTok. What was his answer? They are not on TikTok. Now, he said it's because of where we live and where we live, it's outlawed. When, of course, if I lived in America with my children, they would be on TikTok. I don't believe that. I believe it was easy to say that because it helped his narrative. But we have heard from people that work at Apple and the higher ups that have said we don't give our kids iPads. I've heard from people that work higher up at Facebook that say we don't allow our kids to be on Facebook and the same with Instagram and the same with Twitter because they know what happens. So the question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to wait around for legislation? Are we going to have conversations with our kids and with our families on what is proper use and what isn't proper use? Are we going to set ramifications? Are we going to set rules around that hey you got to be off the phone at this time it's got to be in the charging station at this time it's not going to be at the table i don't know what that looks like for you but i hope we're all wrestling with what that looks like for us moving forward because there's a generation of folks crying out for help and our answer many times is handing them a phone that's not the help they need we'll be back So as we continue the conversation today, look, again, we're, we are always going to talk about the issue of abortion. We're going to talk about pregnancy centers. We're going to talk about kind of a holistic uh, pro-life viewpoint when it, comes to, when it comes to life in the womb, out of the womb, when it comes to teenagers. Look, my, my oldest just turned 12. These are things that, these are conversations that are happening at our home on, on what that looks like. Our kids do not have uh, phones. Our kids do not have iPads. They don't have Chromebooks. Again, I'm not saying that's the right way. I'm just saying we don't have those things for them. So when my kids write a paper, and we homeschool, but when my kids write a paper, they write it with their own hand, with a pen, in cursive. And so so these are things that we're wrestling with because our oldest is, is not getting any younger. So I got my first phone when I was 15. But that phone was a Nokia. It was giant, and you couldn't text. There was no social media. So literally, it was just a phone. I, I had a phone that I could carry around in my pocket. Phones nowadays are supercomputers that you can carry around in your pocket. So when you hand that to a child, a teenager, again, they have access to everything. You can put parameters on there. You can put restrictions on there. But the reality is many of our kids... If you've ever seen them with a remote or any kind of technology, they know what they're doing. And so the question is, what are we doing with it? Now, some of us are going to go overboard and we're going to keep it away from them for a long time. Others of us are going to be very, uh, very cautious and we're going to have parameters in place. And then others are going to go, hey, go have at it, have fun. And, And somewhere in there is the answer. But at the very least, we need to be wrestling with it. We need to be having conversations with our spouse, having conversations with our, our parents, the grandparents of our children. Are they, when they go over to our grandparents' house, are they getting access to things we don't want them to have access to? When they go over to a friend's house, these are conversations nobody wants to have but are very important as we walk through that. So now I want to, uh, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. Because the other day, I, I've been thinking through this, this uh, what I'm about to share with you for, for a while now, 
for the last few weeks, I've just been kind of wrestling with, uh, with leadership and what leadership looks like and what leadership means in, in our current situation, our current time. What does it mean in the Pregnancy Center movement to be a leader? What does it mean to be a leader in the business world? What does it mean to be a leader in, in church? What, what do these things mean and why should we care about being a leader? Are we called to be a leader? Or are our children being called to be leaders? And so I put some thoughts down on paper, and I want to share some of those with you. So we typically label leaders based on who wears the captain's hat. Who's in charge? The answer to this question in terms of determining our leaders is, I would argue, a poor litmus test. A better litmus test, especially given our current cultural state, is to grade or determine our leaders by their record in times of crisis. I can make this recommendation because I believe that good leaders prove or show themselves during these moments. This is true in all areas of life and society as we have witnessed this in our homes, in our workplaces, in our governments, and in our communities. Why, though, does this litmus test matter to us as leaders in the pregnancy center movement? Why should we be intentional when we seek out leaders in our work? Why should we pray, give time, or ask hard questions as we think about those that might pick up the mantle of leadership? I understand that the answer to these questions can vary, but I believe a single answer can suffice. We need to be intentional, pray, give time, and ask the hard questions because our culture and society is in a time of crisis. This crisis rears its head daily as abortion is celebrated. Anti-life legislation permeates governments and our work. The work of the pregnancy center is under attack. This is why I believe that our current climate calls for leaders, not bosses. As we navigate our work in the pregnancy center movement, we must realize where our culture sits and where our culture, apart from a revival, is headed. It is clear to me that the direction our society is headed points to a great need for bold and effective leadership in our centers, in our homes, and in our communities. We can either sit back and cry, the sky is falling, or we can step up and provide effective leadership. Effective leadership in our work is instrumental if we hope to move our centers in the right direction. We are not operating or serving during peacetime. Instead, our reality is clear to anyone willing to open their eyes as there are those that wish to see our organizations be less effective, get caught on our heels, or simply close our doors. This is a heavy topic, but it is a topic worth visiting as we operate and serve in the post-row U.S. Our state laws, our context, and our budgets might look different, but the needs of our patients, communities, and neighbors are very much the same. There is a thirst for strong leadership and authenticity today. There's a void looking to be filled, and this void, especially in times of crisis, must be filled with truth and leaders that are willing to boldly stand, humbly lead, and graciously serve. I've been blessed to have a front row seat to witness the leaders in the Pregnancy Center movement answer the call when times are tough. It is truly an honor to call many of you my friends and all of you my co-laborers. I do not write this today to discourage. Instead, I pray that this might encourage, reignite, and motivate you to pick up the mantle of leadership in front of you and step out in faith as you lead your organizations, communities, and patients in truth and love. You are placed in this position for a purpose. Embrace that calling and lead well. Now, now that's specifically to those that are working in pregnancy centers, and a lot of folks that work in the pregnancy center movement listen to this show. But regardless of where you fall, in business or, or at home or in ministry, leadership is needed now. You can look at the last three years. A pandemic hits the country. A pandemic hits the world. And some states fared well. Why? Because they had good leaders in place. Some states fared terribly. 
Why? Because they didn't have leaders. They had bosses or managers, people that just oversaw things but weren't leading with conviction. When we look at the ups and downs of our economy over the years and we look at what's happened in our country, when good leaders were in place, things went well. We, we saw that even different parties. You can look back through the history books and, and see that people in different political parties, good leaders, lead well. You see that when crisis comes, when tornadoes hit, when hurricanes hit. You see good leaders step in and they're effective. When times get tough at the church, good leaders are effective. When times get tough in our culture, good leaders are effective. When times get tough at the pregnancy center movement, during the pandemic, we had to scramble. We had to look and see what we needed to do. Good leaders made that possible. So the question is, are we going to be the leader that is needed in such a time as this? But it's not just at your workplace. It's not just at your church. It's not just in your community. It's not just volunteering of your time. But are you being a good leader at home? Are you? Are you being a good leader with your spouse? Are you being a good leader with your children? With the relationships that you have? Do we ever even give thought to it? Now, some of you may be listening going, I'm not a leader. That's not my calling. It's not my gifting. Now, granted, you may not be a CEO. You may not be uh, a politician one day. You may not be leading a ministry. But there's somebody in your life. There's something in your life that you can lead in. What does that look like? What do those conversations look like? How are you bettering yourself in that process? Because, again, if we're we're not good leaders at home, we'll never be good leaders in the marketplace. And in the same way, if we can't even lead ourselves, we're never going to be good leaders at home or in the marketplace. So what are we doing to highlight good leadership? And then what does good leadership look like? I mean, we can go to the greatest leader, Jesus, and he led his, his disciples well. He led his people well. He did that in some pretty tough times. He led them in prayer. He led them in service where he humbly served those around him. He washed the feet of the disciples. Even the disciple Judas, they would ultimately turn his back on him and turn him over. As he's hanging on the cross, dying, he led well as saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was still modeling that leadership even as he took his last breath. He was still witnessing and and bringing about truth and salvation to uh, the man that was on the cross next to him. You see, leadership was who he was. Now, in in the way he led, there was never a mistake. There was never sin. There was never a stumble. It was always strong. It was always going in the right direction. You're not going to have that. You're going to have hiccups along the way. You're going to make a poor decision. You're going to 
lash out at your child because they acted out and, and you're going to lose it. You're going to lash out at your spouse. You're going to bring up old, old wounds and rip scabs off because sometimes we fail. The question is, in those mistakes, in those failures, in those hiccups, what are we doing? Are we correcting them? Or do we have so much pride in our heart that we refuse to admit wrong? Are we willing to admit wrong? When you think about the politicians that you look to, which ones do you, do you tend to gravitate toward? Is it the ones that never admit fault? Or the ones that will look you in the eye and say, I got that wrong, and we're going to do better from here on out? Why is it so refreshing when a leader in our culture looks in the camera and says, I messed up? And from here on out, we're going to get that right. It's refreshing because we don't see it often enough. So leadership is tough. But man, oh man, is it worth the effort. We'll be back. As we finish up today, I just wanted to share, I just have a few minutes. So I wanted to share something that I heard over the weekend that, that really floored me. And it was a, an elderly lady. Uh, that has, you know, seen a lot of life, uh, you know, had kids, uh, long marriage, is sitting in late retirement and just contemplating on, on her decades of, of living experience. And, and I always appreciate hearing from those that are more seasoned in life because they're wise. My granddaddy is like that today. I mean, he's 90 years old and he's wise. Now, now, culture would say he can't be wise. He, he dropped out of school at eighth grade. He's been with my grandmama since they were 14 years old. They've been married for 71 years. 71 years. Doesn't mean it was always perfect. He made some mistakes. His kids have made some mistakes. His grandkids have made some mistakes. His great-grandkids have made some mistakes. But they're wise because they've seen a lot of life. And there's so many things that my granddad my, uh, has told me that, that still play true and ring in my ear as I continue to age. But this, this video that I was watching, it was an older lady, and she was saying, if I could give you any, any advice, it would be this. Don't put off today's joy for tomorrow. Now, what does she mean by that? Well, in her words, she said that when you put off today's joy for tomorrow, we say things like, man, I can't wait till our kids are out of diapers. I can't wait till our kids can walk. I can't wait till our kids start school. I can't wait till our kids can have good conversations with us. I can't wait till our kids graduate high school. I can't wait for our kids to, to complete college. I can't wait for our kids, and the list goes on and on. And then we say things like, I can't wait for uh, my spouse and I to be retired. I can't wait till our salaries reach a point where we feel like we are comfortable and don't have to worry from paycheck to paycheck. I can't wait for that time where we're retired and we can start dating again. I can't wait for that promotion they will make everything better. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait for grandchildren. I can't wait for fill in the blank. 
And what this wise, wise woman said when she finished up was she said, I'm all out of can't waits. She is living the life that she kept saying, I can't wait for. And she's all out of can't, can't wait. She's out of them. And now she's looking back and going, man, I, I wish I would have just been present and intentional when my babies were in diapers. I wish I'd have been present and intentional when my baby started walking. I wish I'd have been present and intentional as they started kindergarten, as they finished middle school and finished high school and went off to college and got married. I I wish I would have just been present and intentional in those moments instead of simply saying, I can't wait for the next thing. Are we being present and intentional? This past weekend, my I taught my son how to ride a bike when he was five years old. He's 12 now. He was five or six. I taught him how to ride the bike. Then we had three girls after him. Do you know who has taught our girls how to ride a bike? Gavin, my oldest. He is, I mean, last night or over the weekend, literally, he was like, I could do a class on this. I could make money from this. He is so good at teaching them how to ride bikes. Well, well, over the weekend, Sunday evening, we, we wouldn't let, we, we just got a bike for my, my youngest child with no training wheels, but we wouldn't let her try to ride it because we had family photos on Sunday night and we didn't want her all bruised up just in case she was falling and stuff. So we get done with, with family photos on Sunday evening. We get home about seven o'clock and what happens? Charlie goes and changes clothes. Gavin changes clothes. They go out there and they get on the bicycle. And I promise you, in 10 minutes, that little girl was riding the bike all over the yard. And, and I looked around and, and all, you know, our, our kids can, can rub us the wrong way sometimes. They, they get into it sometimes. But when, when little Charlie rode that bike around the yard and finally got off the bike, watching her siblings scream and yell and celebrate, and watching Gavin pick her up in the air and watching Summer pick her up in the air and hug her. And, and the rest of the night, they say, we're going to call her Champion Charlie because she learned quicker than all of us how to ride a bicycle. In that moment, I wasn't going, I can't wait till Gavin can drive a car. I can't wait till Charlie starts school. I was present and intentional in that moment. I'm not always like that. I didn't get the phone out and video it. I just watched the excitement on their faces unfiltered so don't put off today's joy for tomorrow be intentional be present let the can't waits come but but let's be present intentional today we'll talk to y'all next week